Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 30 of Great Quarter, guys. I am your host, Andrew Cox. I'm here with me, Mr. Kevin Hill. How are we, Kevin? We're doing good today. We're doing good. Yeah, did you have a good Memorial Day weekend? I had a great Memorial Day weekend, played a little golf, relaxed, and and now we're on Great Quarter, guys. We're going to talk about something from my childhood that I remember quite a bit. Yeah, Malls. The, the, it was once a monument of uh, consumer of American consumerism and now seemingly uh, going to the wayside. It was a gathering place for the community to go watch a movie, go eat, go shop, and now uh, they're being abandoned in a rapid place. Yeah, no doubt. And we've got an incredible guest with us today. It's actually uh, one of the OG hosts of Great Quarter Guys and the creator of its namesake, Great Quarter Guys. This is, of course, Mr. Seth Holm. He spent, uh, he's, he's on our team here at the Freight Intel Group and is a consumer guru. He spent about 10 years at a hedge fund in Atlanta covering consumer stocks and TMT. Uh, so we'll just go ahead and bring him right in. We're going to talk about the future of malls. There is Mr. Seth. How are we today, man? Good. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, we can hear you and see yes. you great. How was All your right. Memorial Day? Yeah. It was good. Uh, I went down to Lake Burton and uh, I played golf twice like Kevin. So, uh, you know, my game's getting better, um, you know, and now I'm taking care of two kids by myself, getting back into the swing of things. <laughs> yeah, busy day in the in the home household. So let's let's hop right into the discussion, man. We want to talk a little bit about malls today, talk about uh, brick and mortar and retail, how COVID-19 is accelerating the, the move away from brick and mortar or the move to on, online, you know, just a, a big conversation there that we can start off the top is that, of course, in the news, there's been some major retail bankruptcies. We've seen about a dozen or so this year, and, and some of them have been some really big household names, Pier One, True Religion, J. Crew, uh, and the most recent Neiman Marcus and J.C. Penney. Uh, Seth, you want to just talk, get off the top about uh, your thoughts on some of these major brands going by the wayside. They obviously were struggling pre-COVID, and, and this COVID-19 may be the final straw uh, that breaks the camel's back. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, looking at that list, I think we can uh, dice it down a little bit. So, some of those, those are household names, but they don't do a lot of sales anymore, most of them at least. Um, so, you know, J.C. Penney probably peaked in 1985. Um, Pier One is, um, you know, a very small company that sold knickknacks. Um, you know, Neiman Markets, that was an LBO, so that was a function of too much debt. Um, so you got a, a little bit of different stuff going on there. Um, you know, the mall is certainly uh, dying. Um, we can get into that in great detail. And COVID has certainly, you know, accelerated. Uh, here's here's my early reads on e-commerce. I mean, we've been seeing it in the spending. It's been running up about 80 percent. Um, you know, e-commerce as we ended 2019 was only, you know, surprisingly only 12 percent of U.S. total retail sales. Um, and now it's 27 percent, uh, according to that chart we saw. Um, you know, Amazon put up about 30 something percent e-commerce growth in their Q1. Um, they were about half of e-commerce. Then last week, Target and Walmart reported they're coming off of a much smaller base, but Target grew 141% uh, online and Walmart grew 74%. Uh, and then, you know, the other two huge retailers, Home Depot and Lowe's, have seen booming e commerce uh, sales as well. So I think there's been an acceleration. Um, both to, in, within retail, there's been two big trends there's been an acceleration in online and an acceleration in market share shifts to the big guys. And a lot of that is unfair because the big guys basically got all deemed essential while the small guys are forced to shut down. So um, that's what I've been seeing so far. 
So you, you mentioned that chart that we've shown a couple times on the show, and that was the, uh, the, the acceleration, the rapid acceleration of e-commerce that was kind of forced by uh, this COVID-19 lockdown. Do you think that's something going to stick? Do you think two years from now we'll still have 25% market share uh, on the e-commerce side of total retail spending, or do you think some of that pulls back when uh, the stores are open back up? Yeah, um, I so I think that um, it's going to go down probably um, to the high teens, uh, maybe not all the way back to where it was because. Um, but I would expect you know e-commerce to continue to grow. Um, if overall U.S. Uh, consumer spending has bottomed and continues to grow at three or four percent, I would expect that to stabilize maybe in the mid to high teens um, area. I do not expect it to stay at twenty-seven percent. Just because I think that people are itching to get out and spend. And, um, you know, a, a lot of the stuff I've been buying, at least, um, you know, I just I've been shopping on Amazon simply because I have to. I mean, it's the only place I can go. And when Amazon Amazon is so busy and they've even hired more people, um, I've had to go to Target.com as my second option. But um, I think it's a little I mean, that that structural trend to e-commerce is definitely in place and stronger than ever. But I don't think that we'll maintain e-commerce at 27 percent over the next you know few quarters call it that's an interesting lead in we 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 go over this bank of america credit card and debit card spending real-time spending uh every single week uh seth sends that over to us and we, we kind of geek out on it uh all three of us certainly uh, about this data and over the last week you know department stores are down 67 percent year over year for for last week which is which is amazing. I mean, it kind of uh, takes you to the twenty seven percent e commerce type of, of of spend, but you know, just to be that down that much. But you're bullish on department stores and really non essential retail on the stocks, right? Okay, so let's separate stocks from the real economy. Um, <laughs> yeah. Of course, so, uh, this will be interesting. So, for people who don't trade stocks, what you need to figure out is where the future is going. Everyone knows Amazon is completely dominant. It's one of my largest stock holdings to, uh, for full disclosure. But um, things are going to open back up, and all the people that have been closed and are delevering on all their fixed expenses and in danger of going out of business, there's going to be a rotation in terms of money managers are going to move money out of, I think, tech stocks and into stuff like brick-and-mortar stocks. So to be clear, uh, I am bullish on some brick and mortar retailers that are not department stores. So, first things first on department stores. Um, you know, department stores used to be a big thing. They're really not that consequential at all. So they used to be something like a hundred billion in sales 15 or 20 years ago. And I used to know all these numbers cold, so we can look them up. But I'll, I'll be close. They went from like a hundred billion uh, and like 30 percent of overall uh, apparel spending. And they've gone in a straight line down to like 10 or 20 billion cumulative. So they've lost 80% of the sales that they've had. And they've been closing all over the place. So I think if you're bullish on department stores, it's for, you know, a few week trade uh, on short covering. So I'm not bullish at all on those. However, on some of the brick and mortar guys who were basically penalized because they were forced to close, uh, close down and then, you know, they, those are some beat up stocks. I do think that that will be a better place to put your money, even than Amazon, over the next six to 12 months. And that's just simply a function of, um, you know, early on in an economic recovery, um, the market may have gotten ahead of itself, but 
you want to buy the beat up junky stuff early on in the uh, in the recovery. So, Seth, you, you mentioned earlier, but we, we'd get into the discussion about why malls have dwindled down. So let, let's talk about why malls are now the, the junky cleanup spots that, that they once were, uh, you know, really monuments to commuter, American consumerism. They were places that people made movies about, people that they took the whole family there for an entire day to, to shop for everyone. Why is that not the case now? Is it simply because there's, we have so many other things to do? We have uh, Netflix and Amazon and everything to take up our time. I mean, wh- what, what do malls need to do to make themselves cool again? Yeah, um, so I know we're talking malls, so Kevin wants to talk Stranger Things. Um, yes. Um, but, uh, also, uh, you know, I remember when I was younger, uh, this will date me, but, uh, you, you know, when you f- had your first girlfriend, you used to go to the mall and hang out and right. go walk around. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I, I don't think that malls can have can go through some big, you know, resurrection in any, in any, of any sort. Um, you know, I, I think what it is is it's just going to be uh, – to shift the tenant mix as much as possible to stuff that people want to actually go to the store for. Right. So, um, and you know, I read an interesting article from Barron's. You can tell a good mall from a bad mall by how crowded its food court is. Um, I don't know if there's any truth to that, but, um, you know, I don't think there's a lot of these, uh, retailers and malls are tired. Um, you know, I'm not a big believer in turning these things into like, you know, hospitals or, you know, maybe distribution centers for Amazon might there might that might actually hold some promise, given that these things are all centrally located in the suburbs right next to the highways and all that kind of stuff. Um, I wish I had like a silver bullet prescription, but um, I think we'll just continue to see more of the same. And there there has been a bifurcation in mall performance for a decade now where those A and B malls have been doing fine, uh, at least prior to mm-hmm. COVID foot traffic and I always reference Linux and Phipps because uh, I'm from Atlanta. Uh, you know, those malls are packed, always packed. Um, so if you've got good demographics and good shops, I think the malls will be okay. They're not going to be booming. Um, I think you may see an initial boom because people are just getting, especially if there's a vaccine because people are itching to get out of the house and walk around. But for those C and D malls, um, there's just not a lot of hope there. I mean, it's not the cool place to go anymore. I think a lot of that is digital connection. So, you know, kids are on social media. That's how they communicate these days. Um, you know, they, they probably, they don't go meet up in a mall to go walk around in circles and loiter around Foot Locker, you know? So I don't know. I don't know how to fix that. But, but as you mentioned earlier, I just wanted to get your touch on that. So thank you there. But as you mentioned earlier, you, you said that malls have become, you know, inconsequential. They're, they don't make up a massive amount of the, the brick and mortar sales anymore. So where has the, where has the, the movement shifted to? Where are people now spending their money in brick and mortar stores? And do you think that will change in the next uh, couple of years? Yeah. So department stores are completely inconsequential. Malls are not totally un- inconsequential, but they are more inconsequential than, than they have ever been. They are consequential to the mall REITs, the Simon properties of the world. Um, those guys are going to be hurt. Um, but, but where the spending is going is it's there's two answers. Um, winning retailers in this day and age, um, they really it, you you have to be able to differentiate yourself against Amazon because Amazon's eating the world. And the way you do that generally is to have something unique uh, or something that's a value like a dollar store or something like that, or something that's convenient um, or that you have to go buy in person. Those are really the only four things. Um, the other winning formula for retail has been omni-channel, 
Um, Omnichannel is basically just, uh, you know, meeting the customer wherever it is they want to buy. So COVID has actually highlighted a lot of this. Uh, Walmart has been very successful in Omnichannel. Uh, so whether it be online grocery sales, uh, Bopus, which is buy online, pick up on store, curbside pickup, um, you know, uh, all that kind of stuff, brick and mortar uh, and straight online sales. So I do think that sales will continue to shift online and also to that omni-channel uh, mix where you interact with the customer in multiple formats and multiple physical places even. I, I do think the, the, the someone will figure out the mall question. I, I, we don't have the answers and probably only a handful of people probably has a vision to figure that out. But there's a lot of space. There's a lot of things that you can do. Blue ocean strategy, creating something that that is a mall, but not a mall. And I think some developers are, are trying to do that. We'll see if that works or if it's something that is just completely out of left field. Yes, yeah, so I think so someone will repurpose that. Have you heard about the new mall that uh, I've never even heard of this company? You probably have the Triple Five Group. They're out of Canada. They're they're basically making um, you know leisure recreational centers into malls. They're building one in, in New Jersey that's supposed to be a 15-year project, $5 billion. It'll have an indoor ski slope. It'll have all of these different attractions to try to get families in there. Uh, it'll end up being bigger by square footage than the Mall of America. Uh, so, do, I mean, do you see that as a, as a potential future for malls? People are trying to make them lifestyle hubs with more gyms and microbreweries and type of that. Like, do you think that is a future for these malls? Or do you think the big cookie-cutter malls that we've had are just they're kind of by the wayside? Uh, Kevin will get a kick out of this. I, I think that sounds like a good place for venture capital to go and die. Um, <laughs> but um, no, in all seriousness, it's not that bad of an idea, but I don't I don't see that becoming anything uh, revolutionary. Um, you know, I know they have that uh, hotel in um, the Middle East that you can ski in. I mean, just the amount of CapEx you have to put in with an uncertain return there and, and people may get tired of it. I mean, I don't know. Um, it's not where I would put my my money personally. I, I agree with you on that, Seth. I, I think it's a, it's a good place to, to put your money to die. Uh, I think <laughs> someone's going to go and find a very low budget way to make malls important again. I'm actually, and, think, I think the distribution something. center probably makes the most sense, like some sort of curbside well, think, pickup spaces for big uh, big box retailers. Well, I, I or think there'll be more places. community. I think there'll be more congregating at, at malls for some reason. That un, that reason is unknown right okay. now, but All someone's right. going to figure that out curbside i want to talk about curbside because why haven't we been talking about curbside for years we kind of have uh and i guess this uh covid19 response uh kind of drove that just like you know working from home and and other trends that, that we're going through right now but i i think uh, what do you think on curbside and the growth of curbside uh for the the big box retailers and 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 really the retailers that, that have a good brick-and-mortar presence, maybe not the big box, maybe it's those, those right. smaller stores. No, I mean, I, I think as long as you have, um, you know, the parking, uh, there's a parking situation where you can accommodate that. I mean, I think it makes a lot of common sense, right, especially if people continue to be worried about um, their health and, you know, uh, the coronavirus and other viruses and they don't want to be touching things or other people or getting into close contact, um, it's basically, you know, for those retailers that can't get you something inside of a day like Amazon, uh, curbside pickup makes a lot of sense and it's very convenient. You just go and you don't even have to. I did it at Ace Hardware the other day uh, here in town and, um, you know, I, I placed my order in the app and I paid for it um, inside of the app and they just brought it right out to my car. So I think that's definitely here to stay. 
Um, it'll be, um, you know, a major trend for years to come. Would be I, I guess one of the reasons, too, because of that is is the Amazon effect. You know, I, there was one day, it was two day delivery, and then the big charge over the last 12 months or so for one day delivery. And because of COVID 19, that, that one day delivery didn't go to two day delivery. It went to like a one week delivery. So if it's one week delivery versus ordering online to Ace of Hardware and going and picking it up that afternoon, uh, that is where curbside really becomes, uh, you know, uh, an attractive alternative. Absolutely. I mean, I, I definitely agree with that. And I've seen in a couple of retailers, notable retailers that have reported this quarter, uh, namely, um, Best Buy and uh, Bed Bath and Beyond. Best Buy said that um, their brick and mortar sales were running at 80% um, of their pre-COVID sales simply because of curbside pickup. So um, it is it has literally been that important for some retailers out there that it's kept them alive um, and and kept their sales alive. So Seth, you have written in the past about you know we've we've written on autonomous vehicles, how long it would take us to get there. Uh, we, you're now writing a little bit on last mile and that kind of delivery. So I wanted to ask you if if you have an opinion on which do you think would come first, which do you think we're going to see first, this move towards autonomous last mile delivery or sort of micro fulfillment centers, things built near neighborhoods, built uh, close to uh, er- populous areas to be kind of uh, little tiny fulfillment centers, m- tiny distribution centers. Which do you think we'll see first? Yeah, I'd go with the latter, the micro fulfillment centers. Um, I think increasingly, if everybody wants to compete, you know, Amazon will probably be at a, you know, a few hours uh, in, within a year or two and, and major population centers. Um, although there's one other thing that I, I was thinking about um, as a result of COVID. I think that the population is going to get more suburban. So people are going to leave city centers. So that could play into this a little bit. But um you know, everyone that I talk to on the autonomous stuff, I know Tesla says they can get there, you know, by the end of this year or whatever. But, um, you know, that is really there's just so much to get to level five autonomy. And then you got to there's so many regulatory hoops to jump through. Um, there's been some retailers in China. I know JD.com has been successful with automating their delivery uh, through drones and other things like that. But um, they have less regulations to deal with there. Um and um, so definitely, I, I think that the distribution will continually move closer. That would be uh, the trend. I, I think it will, too. I mean, I, I think it comes back to that curbside type of, of philosophy on the, the brick and mortar uh, is a micro. And, you know, I agree with you on autonomous. We're 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 so far away from level five that especially through this this recession that, that we're having right now, because. A lot of those uh, those companies that are working on autonomous vehicles are basically seeing uh, their runways pulled or running out of runway altogether. Yeah, I mean, we've seen some notable. It's on the trucking side. We've seen a couple of them close down. I mean, so it's tough when you're 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 basically funding R and D spending with no revenue. Um, that right. and into a massive recession. That's not a good formula. Um, and no immediate revenue, no intermediate revenue. It's a long-term vision. So whenever you hit a crisis, those are the first things that, that kind of get the, the plug pulled on. You know, those big bets like that. And I think that's true of, um, you know, you. this is an unusual recession, though. One thing, um, I don't know how much time we have, but we talked about this pre-show. Uh, I can't think of many other recessions uh, with, you know, you're approaching 30% unemployment. 
and you know things like RV sales and boat sales are absolutely booming. So um, you know those those industries got absolutely destroyed in 2009, and I think that's a function of um, you know both the stimulus and the unemployment benefits this time around, basically being able to bridge that gap. Um, but yeah, you know one thing that happens in recessions is innovation gets temporarily stifled generally because all the riskier projects don't get funded. But, um, you know, this time around, uh, there will, it might be a minor step back, but I do think autonomy is a very promising long-term trend. It'll just take a while. Seth, I'm glad you mentioned some. I'm glad you mentioned that about uh, innovation because that's something I wanted to mention to you as well. Because uh, yeah, as you said, innovation does usually get stifled in a recession. People have to cut back on R and D and cut back on capex. But it seems like because of the coronavirus, because of the need for lockdown and the the need that people feel to to, to feel safe, it feels like this might actually spur some innovation. Well, uh, you know, you see right now that Walmart and Target and places they're um, keeping people safe with hand sanitizer and with masks. But it seems like technology will likely take over that for the long term. What do you think? Yes, um, especially the more um, in dire, sh- the businesses that are in dire straits will really have to innovate. Um, you know, I was reading articles this morning about how movie theaters are going to reopen. And so they're going to open at like 25% capacity at first. Um, they're going to cut down on the menu. Uh, they're going to put in, um, you know, they're going to clean the theaters every time they're, they're, they're going to move to only contactless payments. Uh, so there's going to be no more paper tickets and cash, um, and you're going to have to wear a mask, obviously. But so movie theaters, that's a real big effective one. That's just a good example. But, um, you know, you've seen a lot of this in the restaurant industry, too. Now they're they're putting up these plexiglass stuff everywhere. Obviously, I think it's a huge accelerator for digital payments. Um, if MasterCard and Visa weren't already in a good spot and PayPal and Square, et cetera, um, you know, those are those trends. Well, I think cash is. Uh, you know, was already dying. But what's crazy is cash is still like 85% of spending. Um, I think that that will be one permanent trend uh, to benefit. But yeah, you know, I mean, you're going to have to figure out um, one thing that I've also noticed, just a bifurcation in retail. Um, you know, the big guys that have a lot of square footage, those guys are more conducive to a reopening than the, than the little guys are. Uh, because in the little guys, you can only, if you have a limited amount of square footage, you can only have, because of social distancing and, and making sure to maintain, um, you know, space and cleanliness, you can't have a lot of people in there. So it's hard to get your sales back up to where they were at a little retailer with limited square footage, just simply because you can't put as much throughput through the store. Yeah, I was at. Uh, I actually ran by the mall just this weekend to go to Chick Fil A. We were ha- we were happen to be out in Hickson, so I went to the the mall for Chick Fil A, and there was only like three stores in the whole mall open. Uh, but one of them was Foot Locker, and they were only allowing five people in the entire store at one time. So I can definitely see uh, how that's playing out already. Yeah, I think there's a lot. Right. Of fu- so imagine imagine trying to get back to your old sales per square foot um, in that sort of scenario. I think I think you're going to see a lot of technological innovation, but also business process innovation. I think that's where you're you're going to see uh, the the most value generating innovation is in business models. Trying to figure out how to go forward, like you're talking about movie theaters. Uh, if you talk about movie companies, distribution companies, I mean, do you do you cut out theaters? I mean, where does that mix go into direct to, to Amazon or, or Apple TV rather than going running it through a theater? Uh, and then, you know, finish line, only offering five people in. Uh, restaurants, restaurants realizing that they can 
do a whole new revenue stream or the bulk of the revenue stream coming from takeout instead of dine-in and trying to figure out how to do alcohol sales with that because that's the, the highest margin type of items in restaurants. So the people who can innovate and and figure those questions out, whether you're using technology or not, it's going to be a combination are going to be the real winners. And we're seeing a lot of innovation right now. Yeah, so Seth, we're we're running short on time. We only got a few minutes, but I did want to hear your uh, your take on on restaurants because you and I were discussing it the other day, and you know we kind of made the argument that even when uh, capacity is reopened, even when the demand is back for restaurants, there, you can make an argument there that it's likely going to be structurally at a lower profit margin uh, moving forward. Do you agree? Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Um, I think the only way for forward for restaurants is to. Uh, raise prices and then exhibit good transparency to their customers and say, you know, we are raising prices because we have all these additional cleaning costs. Uh, we can only have, you know, certain amount of seats in our restaurants. But if you think about it, um, the days, especially like I used to go to New York all the time. If you think about just sitting in one of those New York restaurants, you're sitting on top of each other. And so, um, you know, I do think as long as until we get a vaccine, that is, uh, profit market margins in the restaurant business are going to be hurt because of uh, you're not going to be able to do the same traffic that you used to be able to do. Uh, you may not have uh, the alcohol sales that you used to if there's a mixed shift to takeout. Uh, and then also uh, the uh, you know the online delivery guys, the Grubhub's and the Uber uh, Eats of the world, they charge a big fee, um, and so um, they they eat into what already is a low margin business. And then on top of that. You know, we talked about, um, you know, I saw somewhere that the average, you know, take a one million dollar restaurant. Um, if you think about uh, business economics for restaurants, the way um, there's something called a four wall profit margin, which is basically the operating margin of the brick and mortar uh, restaurant. Um, and a really, really good margin is about 30 uh, percent. And that's Chipotle. Um, and then, a re, you know, a, on the lower end, a 10 percent would be a really bad margin. Um, I think you will, and the average is kind of 20%. Um, I think that will move lower as you have to, um, you know, you're going to have to ha have more people in there, uh, you know, cooking, cleaning, uh, and then you're going to have less people in there. You're going to have bigger overhead with less revenue. So that, you know, in, in short, will mean lower profit margins. Uh, well, very good. Seth, you want to hang on with us uh, to do our quick long shorts? Yeah, sure. Perfect. Okay, so our first one, uh, this is a continuing talk from the coronavirus freight market update this morning, and Greg Miller has covered this uh, just absolutely to the nail uh, for the last few weeks, but that's about ocean carriers blanking sailings. We've now seen that you know about 20% of the capacity was taken offline for May and June, but it now seems like the ocean carriers are not going to be extending um, blank sailings through July. They usually do it about four to six weeks out, so they would have already done it if they were to do it, but it's still up in the air. My question to you, Seth, is are you long or short that the ocean carriers will extend blank sailings into July uh, and August and thereafter? That's a good question. That's my weakest area. Um, let me let me see. So the quite repeat that one more time on the blank sailings. Yeah, do you think uh, they're going to do you think they're going to continue blanking sailings or do you think that they're pretty much done uh, with all the blank sailings into July? Uh, you know, I think there's going to be a demand recovery in the US, so I'm going to go short on the blank sailings. Um, I would think those are going to uh, slow down and or stop, right? Yep. How about you? Uh, I, I'm I'm short. Let's let's we have 
limited time. Let's do the. I, I like the next long short. Much okay, better. yeah, I'm short as well. I think I think the demand will pop up pretty quickly. I think Ocean Carriers will be in a better spot July and August. Okay, Seth, my next one to you is uh, you know we we saw the celebrity golf match this weekend raising money for charity. There's rumblings that there could be an even bigger uh, celebrity match coming up for charity, and it's not going to be golf. That it will be boxing. We've we've all seen the videos of Mike Tyson the last couple weeks looking like an absolute beast at 50 years old. Do you think we see a charity fight from Mike Tyson in 2020? And more specifically, I'm hoping for that Holyfield Tyson three. Do you think we see some sort of charity match between the two in 2020, Seth? Uh, you know, this is the first I've ever heard of it. But what I'll say is I'm amazed. I think Brady's a 12 handicap, but he looked like a 30 out there. Um, <laughs> I, I would love to see it, uh, but I, I don't have any uh, I don't have any knowledge on that. Um, I think it'd be a good thing, though. OK, how about you? I'm long. I, I'd love to see it. I'd love to see it. I'm long. How about yeah, you? Yeah, I would too. You could take a hundred bucks out of my pocket to see that. I would love to see Mike Tyson fight again, especially against Holyfield or somebody at least his age. I don't think I'd want to see him fight against a 25 year old professional fighter. And I don't think that'd be yeah. too fair, even though Tyson might knock him out. Uh, but hey, Seth, thank you so much for joining us, man. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Have a good weekend. Have a good day, I guess. Right. <laughs> Middle of the week. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. You later. Thanks. Uh, so, all right. So what else we got going on this week? I think you're talking, uh, put that coffee down. You're talking a little bit about happiness. Yeah, and happiness sales. and sales and, and how to balance that, that wire act. Yeah, that is a difficult to one to balance. Wire. Yeah. Uh, and then, so, you know, we want to thank Carrier Direct yes. for their contributions this week. Diane CO, you are uh, the best. You're always giving us great uh, stuff to talk about. And uh, thanks to Ryan and Peter over there at Carrier Direct as well. I'm sure we'll have one of them on again next week. Um, we have had a lovely show here today, we and have. I hope you guys have a great rest of your week. We are on a six-day, 23-and-a-half-hour break. We will see you guys next time. Thank you.